You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. Welcome to Midweek Tonight. I'm going to invite you just to take a moment right where you're at, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into the Word of God and continue in our series. So I ask you to join with me right now. Lord, I thank you for the many ways that you have blessed us. I thank you for all of the provisions and the things that you have done for us. I ask in these next few moments, even though this is not how we want together, I ask that your blessing would be upon it. Let your spirit, God, be in every home, in every household, in every family, in every person, whether they're joining us live or they're catching this after, it's already premiered online. I pray right now, let your spirit work in our life and let your word strengthen and edify and encourage in Jesus name. And somebody said in Jesus name, amen. Amen. I invite you to join with me tonight. It's Wednesday night. So if you're at home, uh, get your Bible out, get your notebook out, and we're going to look at the Word of God and continue with our series right now. We're in a series called Because I Am, a look at the Ten Commandments. It was my will and desire to finish the series before Thanksgiving. And if you're part of the CTK family and you're, you're normally here on midweeks, you know that I am always more, uh, I have more faith about how quick I'm going to finish a series than we actually do. And uh, so I hear them laughing back here in the back. So I'm going to yield uh, to some people that have said, Pastor, don't feel like rushing through this series. And I'm not going to try to get through eight commandments tonight, but we will look at a few together and then we'll finish this up, Lord willing, uh, back together in person. But if not, we'll, we'll do so here. So we're looking at this series from Exodus chapter number 20. And Exodus chapter number 20 is what we would call the giving of the Ten Commandments, where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He's there for 40 days. And while he's there, the first 33 days, he's in the glory cloud with the Lord. And then the Lord begins to speak to him 33 days into it. And God begins to reveal things like never before. So much so that when Moses comes down from the mountain. Uh, he has to veil his face. The first time he come down, he heard of their idolatry as he approached, as he came closer. Joshua was was there at the uh, uh, part way up the base of the mountain and told him what's going on. And, and Moses, you know, he, he throws the tablets in his anger and crushes them. And they go through that whole routine. And he has to go up the mountain again for a second time. And in the second time, God again takes his finger and he etches in stone, writes by supernatural intervention, these laws upon these tables, the Bible calls them, of stone. And Moses comes down, and when he comes down, the glory of the Lord is so strong upon him that he has to veil his face so that people can stand to be around him. It was the glory of the Lord. So this is, there's so much significance around this. This is foundational. This is paramount. This is everything that the Israelites and 
the law of Moses given to the Israelites as a guidebook to people uh, is all about. So we're looking at this here together, and you've, you've missed, uh, if you're just joining us, you missed a couple weeks, uh, you can go back on YouTube or Facebook and you can find the previous uh, parts. Uh, part one was primarily introduction, just setting it up, which is important for understanding. Part two, we talked last week a little bit about um, what Christ did with the law and, and namely the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we talked a little bit about the order in which the Ten Commandments are given. And, and there's different, different traditions, faith traditions will order them differently. So we're going to pattern after uh, the Jewish tradition because they're the ones that the law was given to and they understood it. And I think Christ endorses that look at the numbering of the Ten Commandments. Nobody, when they try to number them different ways or break them up, is uh, dismissing any part. So that's not bad. But uh, uh, he begins, or, or, or the, the Jews understood that the very first commandment was verse 2, where he starts off with, I am the Lord thy God. Uh, and so that's, that's where we get the because I am. He is. So the number one commandment, the first opening part was the foundational revelation that God is and God is one. So Moses would put this in summary form in Deuteronomy 6 and 4 when he would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Jesus did the same thing when he said the first and great commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and thy soul and thy mind and thy strength. And when he does that, He's he's encapsulating everything. The second he says is, is namely this love thy neighbor as thyself. And he puts everything, all of these Ten Commandments in those two things. But Christ is something unique and powerful in the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the best discourses that we have in all of Scripture. There's no part of Scripture that's that's less important than the other. But the Sermon on the Mount, man, holds a special place in my heart. And I know has such significance because it's it's revolutionary. And it's that part. Where, where Jesus exposed the mistake uh, uh, that they were making in the handling of God's word and, and living in their life. So in, in the Sermon on the Mount, what Christ does with the law is revolutionary. And he, he manifests the fact that they were following the letter of the law. We talked about this at length last week, so go back and you can catch that. They were following the letter of the law, but they were missing the spirit of the law. So uh, they were missing the spirit of the law. So we do that as humans all the time. Somebody says, okay, you can't do this. Well, we find a way around to achieve what we want while technically not doing this, whatever this is. And so Christ comes and he says this. He says, I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill the law. That statement alone lets us know that he's not, he's not damaging the law that's already given, and he's not introducing something new. And some people have said the Sermon on the Mount, Christ was introducing something new. For example, when he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say, whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her hath already committed it in his heart. Well, that sounds like something new, but, but Jesus says it's not something new. He said, I did not come to destroy the law. If Christ was coming, bringing a new law and something that was better, then it would have destroyed the old law. But he says, I came to fulfill the law. So what 
the, what he was doing was he was illustrating and giving to us the, the spirit of the law. He wants us to understand the spirit of the law. So we're going to unpack in this series the spirit of the Ten Commandments. What were the Ten Commandments saying? And our focus is not on the letter of the law, but the, uh, but the big idea, the, the paradigm. What was this law getting at? Now, it's simple in nature. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't worship any other God. But there's a big idea that goes along behind that. So uh, trying to, to use an example, when your parents left you at home for the very first time and they say, be good. Um, OK, that, that seems a little ambiguous. Or if they say, don't trash the house, um, they're giving you they're giving you statements, you know, uh, don't drive the car. And so you don't drive the car. You go and you take the truck or you take something else. You avoid the, the letter or, or you avoid the uh, uh, breaking the letter of the law, but you totally miss the spirit of the law. So we do that in human nature. So Christ was coming, exposing how they had offended the law, even though they thought technically were keepers of the law. He was illustrating, no, you're not. You've offended the spirit of the law. And the law pointed us to Christ. The law leads us to Christ. And why is Jesus doing this? Well, he's doing this so that we would know we need him. And through him, through the death, burial, and the resurrection, through the, the infilling of the giving, the, the gift of the Spirit, by the Spirit, we can be partakers. We can overcome sin. We can fulfill the law just as Christ fulfilled the law. So now that we're in the New Testament, we don't just throw the law away and say, thank God that he gave me grace and mercy. I don't have to worry about the law. No, you still have to, you're still going to fulfill the law in your own life by the power of the Holy Ghost. So the Ten Commandments have value for us. And this is the foundation by which we understand that we need God, but also for living our life. So what we're going to look at in theology, we would maybe use the term, we're going to look at the paradigmatic nature or the paradigms that God is giving to us in each one of those Ten Commandments. Now, the traditional numbering of the Ten Commandments among Protestant churches is that the first commandment is, uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so even if you're following after that ordering, that is still built upon the foundation that I am the Lord thy God. And I spent length talking about that, so we won't revisit that. But because I am a look at the Ten Commandments. So everything that God asks us to do is based upon the revelation of who he is. That's the first commandment. I am the Lord thy God. And because he is, then, then he's the cause. The effect is these commandments being followed and fulfilled in our life. And you can keep the Ten Commandments. So we don't look at the Ten Commandments and say, oh, that's something that's such a high mark we can't keep. No, you can keep those. That's why God gave them to us. Uh, our offense of those. Now, we may not ever kill somebody, but in the paradigm that that's given, we offend that. And by our offense of that law is the reality of my need for salvation. So by the law, I know that I need God. By the law, I know that I am a sinner. Even if I'm not worshiping idols, even if I'm not killing people, stealing, committing adultery, coveting, I am offending somewhere the spirit of the law. So let's look at this. So, so last week we looked at I am the Lord thy God. We looked at the second commandment, 
which I split the second commandment in two parts, and it was, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we're going to pick up tonight with uh, uh, 2B. So the first commandment was 2A, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And tonight we're going to look at what I'm calling commandment 2B, thou shalt make no idols or no graven images. Let's go to verse 4 here in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4. And it says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath and that is in the water under the earth. Verse five, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord, thy God am a jealous God visiting, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and the fourth generation under them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So we started at verse four, but verse three also says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then he goes right into thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. So we talked about verse verse uh, three being two a, and that was this, that it literally forbids us to worship or commit to anyone, anything or any system that would preempt the rule and the will of God in our life. So not only is God one, but we cannot do anything that would uh, worship anything or serve anything or even put in our priorities anything that would displace God's voice or his authority. Not only that, he says you should not make any idols. Don't make any idols. Now, we've already established that we cannot have any other thing that would displace God in our life, but don't make any idols, any graven image. Here, here would have been their temptation. Having lived in Egypt, they're out of the wilderness not very long. Moses goes up the mountain, and it's 33 days. It's 40 days he's up there. And at some point in that process, they thought he's gone, he's lost. They were thinking he's going to be up. He's going to be right back down. And so they despaired, and immediately they go and they create. This the 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 ridiculousness of this is absurd. They take their jewelry, some of the jewelry they have, and they, and they make together a golden calf, and they begin to worship at the golden calf. But in their worship of idolatry, it was more than that. They, they didn't just set up the golden calf and say, oh, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt, which is what they did say. But then there was also... Uh, uh, sexual sins, immorality that took place at the worship of that. So what we see is not only did they make an idol and they put God in an image, but then they also make allowances for their fleshly desires and sins. And here's what God was saying. Don't make any graven image. He not only forbid them to make any idol, worship any idol, but he later in other places forbids them from making him an idol. He says, don't even make an, don't even make an image and say that it, it manifests my similitude. He forbids this. Why? Because I am. 
I am. I am the Lord thy God. There's only one God. And we, and, and if you've never uh, taken a look at our absolute series, you can do that on our podcast where we take length to look at the, the eight uh, unique attributes of God. God by himself is without limit. He's without uh, hindrance. There, there is no beginning, no ending. He alone possesses all knowledge. He's absolutely immutable. He does not change. And so the moment, so, so God is invincible and he is indescribable. He is beyond us. He's unknowable. The unknowable God though made himself knowable. So he's transcended. He comes down and makes himself knowable to us, but he's indescribable. We can try to describe him, but we can't even describe him. It's going to fall short in our human ability. So God says, don't even make me don't even say, well, I'm not worshiping another God. I'm worshiping you, but God, I'm, I'm going to build an image so that people can see and remember to worship you. He says, no, absolutely not. Because the moment that you cast God in an image is the moment that you have limited him. You've forgotten, you, you've diminished him. You've brought him down. Uh, if you try to describe God and say, well, God is like a... And he's, he's like a human and he has a large ear because he can always hear you're, you're missing some other aspect. Uh, uh, you make God, uh, with, with large eyes so he can see, he can see better than us. No, he can't just see better than us. He sees all things everywhere all the time. So if you make an image and you put an ear on the image and say, well, God can hear us. Well, God can't just hear out of this ear. God, God knows all, sees all. He's not even within the realm of humanity uh, limited to see what's happening right now before him. He sees in the past. He sees in the present. He sees in the future. He hears in the past. He hears in the present. He hears in the future. He's not limited. So the moment we make God an image is the moment that we diminish something. So God put strict commands. Do not make me an image. Don't make me after any similitude because I'm indescribable. I, I'm without limit. I, I'm, I'm beyond your comprehension. I'm beyond your uh, he, as, as I've also said, he's the unknown God that made himself knowable. So we don't know everything there is to know. We know everything we need to know. We know everything about, about God that we need to know, but there's things about God that, wow, I can't understand. I, I can't understand the how and the why I know he's my creator. I know we spoke the earth into existence. I know he spoke everything as scripture says in a matter of days, but I don't know how it doesn't make sense to my human logic and, and, and rationale. So the moment I've cast him in an image, I'm limiting him. So not only that, the second thing is when I make God an image after what I think he should be, or after what I know about him, the temptation also comes to make God what I want him to be. And we do this all the time. We, we do this. We as humans, we do. We make God in an image. Uh, for, for instance, you know, we, we, somebody paints a picture of Jesus and, you know, was was Jesus white? Was Jesus black? Uh, what was God like? We immediately cast God in some kind of a thing. We're, we're coming from our own perspective and our own experience. 
And, and we have this, this image of, of, of Jesus with, with a, a full set of hair and straight teeth. And, and, and this, the Bible says that he had no, uh, he, w- he was comely. He, he, there was nothing about him that you would look at and say, oh, wow. Um, he was more than that. Even when he came and robed himself in flesh, he wasn't this picture perfect celebrity, but there was something about him. He was more, it was, it was beyond the human realm. It was a, it was beyond the the natural eyes beauty. It was beyond something. It drew us in. He was God manifest in the flesh. So not only are we not to make any graven image and serve any other graven image, we're not to cast God in a certain form. This is the paradigm because once we make God something, we make God, we we make that God uh, permissive of our own desires. That's what happened when they created the golden calf. Well, let's, Moses isn't here. God, God, we don't know where God's at. Let's create a God. And by that God, idolatry was always a way that they would justify their, their, themselves. I can already see I'm not going to maybe get as long as I wanted to get tonight, Brother Brandon, but I don't want to, I don't want to speed past this. A few, uh, a few, it might've been last year, maybe a couple years ago, I can't remember, but the St. Louis Art Museum had an exhibit. And in the exhibit, I can't remember, it, it, was, uh, it was the Egyptian exhibit. I can't remember which one it was. And there was a new find, relatively new find in the, oh, I'm trying to think here where, where the Nile River comes out in the Delta. Underwater, they found new Jewish massive uh, inscriptions that as ships would come into the bay or into the harbor, these these pillars were uh, built underwater, and this massive stone was like uh, the old version of a billboard, but it was etched in stone, and here it is thousands of years old, and they pulled it back up, and they had a whole, whole exhibit based on that. What the inscription said, though, was it was the notification of a new God, and that new God was God of the harbor. I'm, I'm talking off the top of my head. I can't remember everything, but that was the God of the harbor, and in order to please the God of the harbor and so that you would have safe passage in and out and your ship would be safe while it was in dock, uh, you had to pay a tax to, of course, the, the Egyptian government there in that area. And it was often said or or noted in history that the creation of gods, the ancients would invent gods and those gods would serve themselves or their country in ways or they would justify their own lifestyles and doings. And so in that exhibit, if you went around uh, uh, through, it was a paid exhibit. If you went in, they had one part where you stepped behind the wall by the window and they had a full wall where they had a little nook. And on that, they had the parallels between uh, the, the religion of the Egyptians and all of their gods to the religion of the Greeks and all their gods, to the religion of Rome and all of their gods. And the parallels were pretty incredible. And basically they were making gods and they were justifying their own means and their own ways of doing things. This was what was going on in the land of Canaan when Israel comes into Canaan and God says, I'm, I'm going to use you to drive out these nations because they had defiled God in such a way. 
uh, their practices, very immoral, sexual immorality. By the way, always in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, idolatry and nakedness always went together. So I don't think it's an accident that as we see in our culture, the rise of, of, uh, loose morals with regard to sexuality, um, and all of this stuff, we're seeing this in culture. It's matching. As Hollywood goes, so does our culture. And one of the greatest things right now, the elephant in the room that we're not talking about is, is the porn industry, uh, uh, the, 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 the sexual immorality that's so pervasive in our own homes. And uh, this is a huge issue. Um, so, you know, at the same time, People are standing up, the Me Too movement, standing up against abuse against women and other, but, but sex trafficking, all of these things that are taking place, not only here in America, but around the world, but they're happening right here in America. And it's shocking. The statistic is so disturbing what's going on. This right here. Why? Because we're making a breach of this right here. We've displaced God and we've elevated our own gods and we've created things and we're justifying. It's all about justifying how I live. So what I'm saying here tonight, what I'm teaching here tonight is not politically correct because it's telling somebody that there is a right way to live and a wrong way to live. And academia in large majority hates that. And that's why they hate Christianity. That's why they hate the Bible. Now there's a lot of hypocrisy in Christianity. Yes, we acknowledge that. There's a, a lot of failures in that, but God's word is true. And this is what God was giving to us here. So, um, God is not to be known through an idol, through something that we, we make or we project, but God is to be known spiritually. And that's why we don't have idols. That's why we don't have idols here in the church. That's why we don't have statues. That's why we don't worship statues. And we, we would preach against that. You know, we, we don't deify things. He, he says very plainly, do not have any idols. Do not have any graven images. And so this notion that entered into Christianity at large and the church in, in church history and dark ages where cathedrals were full of statues and gargoyles to drive spirits away. No, that's not how God works. God is to be known spiritually, not physically. We know him and we see his working in us physically, but we don't set up an idol and worship him. God is to be known spiritually. My God's bigger than an idol. He's greater than that. So the moment you show an idol, okay, yeah. So my God's bigger than that. My God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Oh, and he owns the hills. And he knows all the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. That's the constant thing that we see reoccurring in the Old Testament. So let's go on. So that's, that's commandment number two, part A and part B. Commandment number three. Verse seven, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. So now I am the Lord thy God. Don't have any other gods. Don't worship any graven image. And now the third commandment is don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Why? Because I am. Because he is. I am the Lord thy God. I am not empty and I am not meaningless. He is everything. So that word vain in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew text literally means empty. Uh, uh, 
we are not to use the name of God in a vain way, in an empty way or a meaning way. He is not to be a byword. We're not to use his name dismissively. So even when we speak the name of God, when we speak the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we are not to say that dismissively. Jesus Christ is the name of Almighty God. In fact, in the New Testament, when you look at it, we often do this. We'll, we'll speak because we're Gentiles. We, we will say the name of Jesus alone, or we'll talk about Jesus. But in the New Testament, there was always distinction. Whenever they refer to just the name of Jesus, there was distinction, purpose in that, showing uh, uh, God manifest in flesh. But everywhere else in the epistles, when they speak the name, they call him the Lord Jesus Christ. They would always put Lord Jesus. They make sure to, to put honor in there and the respect and exalt the name to the proper position. So we don't speak the name of God in vain. We don't use that name in an empty or meaningless way. He is not to be dismissed. He is not to be ignored. When we call that name, it better have purpose. I better be calling on that name because I need that name or because I'm worshiping that name. But God is not empty. He's not meaningless. No, he's everything to us. Our whole life has meaning because of him, because I am. I don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain because I am more than just saying the name. I am a follower of Christ. My life is not empty. My life is not meaningless. What I do, how I live has purpose and meaning because I am. I can't take his name in vain. Don't call yourself a Christian and then live an empty and meaningless life, a life where God doesn't mean everything to you. So when we speak of him in vain, he is made equivalent to the petty and the trifling, even equivalent to the vulgar and the filthy. You cannot have him as I am in your life and insult him at the same time. It's not possible. So don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Let's go to verse number eight. And here we'll look at the fourth commandment. And this, this is a, uh, where he begins to make a change. So the first four, uh, first three commandments have specifically to do with I am. And now this one, of course, has to do with I am as, as they all do. But now he's getting into a little bit more of, uh, our life now. And he says this, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now that's that's the commandment. That's the one verse. But actually, we're going to continue on. This is in the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. This is the largest portion of verses that he gives to us here in Scripture. And he says this, six days in verse nine, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God in it. Thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. That's a foreigner, somebody that's not of them, but living among them. Verse 11, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is and rested 
the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, in the New Testament, we do not see this commandment affirmed in keeping it in a literal manner. In fact, in the New Testament, there's a change from going to the Sabbath being the day that they would go to synagogue and the day that they would um, come together for a day of rest. And we see in the New Testament, the pattern is the first day of the week becomes the Lord's day. And in church history, that was carried on the first day of the week, because that was the day that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. That was the day of resurrection. And so the church, he being the one to fulfill the law, they followed in that pattern. So the temptation is because this law is not affirmed in the keeping literally on the seventh day of the week in the New Testament, that this commandment is dismissed, but in no way is it to be dismissed. Again, Christ said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. We keep this commandment when we are in the body of Christ, living an overcoming life, separated unto God, and we'll show this. But there's he, this, this commandment has great in, in, uh, purpose, and he takes length to explain to us what's going on. Now, what he's doing here is he's referring back to Genesis chapter number 1 and 2 here. And so he's going to the actual creation, creation day, uh, creative week, if you will. Now, note real quick with me in verse 11. I don't know if you can put verse 11 up there. He says, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that them is and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, God blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. In Genesis, we're going to see it said sanctified. But I just wanted to highlight this real quick. He says, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth the sea. Now, you could be an old earth theorist. You could be a young earth theorist, creationist. Um, but I will say this, that Moses emphatically here says that God created the whole world and universe in six days. Now, people scoff at that because they think, oh, that's just, that's not comprehensible. Uh, that's incomprehensible. So surely it was a long time in each day. And so theistic evolution has been made probable. Uh, and I don't know how God did it. I don't have the answers on that. That stuff's above my pay grade. It's above my ability uh, as, as a preacher to know exactly how he did it. But what I will say this is that your exegesis of Scripture becomes very complicated if you cannot take this verse at face value. Creation is a supernatural miracle that takes place, period, no matter how long it took, no matter how short it took. And so it doesn't take any less faith or any more faith to say that God created the world in six days. Now, we don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden. We don't know how long. So we don't know maybe definitively how old the earth is. The Bible doesn't come back and tell us that. It does give us timeline through, through lineages, and we can look at that. But, but I, could, I, I have many good friends, and, and there's many good theologians and Bible scholars that would say the earth is very old. I, I don't know. I, I can't refute that. But one thing I can say is whenever we start taking the verse the scripture and saying that it doesn't mean 
mean what it says it means, our exegesis gets very complicated, and that's where we get in trouble. And we have to let the Word speak for itself. So what is the Word saying here when he's talking about this creative week? Well, let's go back to Genesis. If we can, we're going to go look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. This is after he's done the creation week, after everything's done. And he's created everything. In Genesis 1 and 31, it says this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So, but on the sixth day, it says, And God saw everything that he hath had made, and behold, it was very good. What that means in this verse, when with the Hebrew word for God saw is beheld, beheld. But that word beheld does not mean beheld in the same context that the English would be where it's reduced to, I just saw, I beheld it. No, to behold it is to look at it with pleasure and with contentment, with fulfillment, achievement. So God creates for six days, and after He creates, He beholds. He's pleased. There is pleasure in what He has done, in what has taken place. There is literally glory in what He has done. And then it goes on in chapter 2 of Genesis And it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Now, he's using the term finished. Now, we know that creation did not stop. We are still in a creative process. Things are still being birthed. There is uh, uh, still... uh, uh, the uh, uh, limited, I'm trying to think of the word, the macro or the micro evolution. I can't remember which one. My mind's going blank. But there's still uh, genetic processes that are taking place. And, and, and things, creation has been set in course, but it's still being fulfilled. It's still taking place. But God finished it and all the host of them. So all that there is. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he hath made, and he rested. That Hebrew word for rest there means to cease. Cease. So he ceased the process of creation. He rested. He beheld. He was pleased. And he ceased. He didn't add any more. It was already done. He didn't add any more to it. On the seventh day from his work, which he hath made in verse three, and God blessed the seventh day. On the seventh day, he ended his work. On the seventh day, he rested. He ceased and he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work, which he created and which he made. So the principle of the Sabbath that Moses is giving to us here, let me go to my devotional, and I think I shared this on self-care and Sabbath back a few months ago when we were in lockdown. My wife and I sat down and we talked about this a little bit. But six days God's work, and then He intentionally labors, He intentionally creates, but all of a sudden that moment stops. And when it stops, the moment that His work stops, He was pleased with His work. He beheld it and He rested. Now God didn't rest in the same sense that you and I rest. God doesn't get tired. He's God. He doesn't wind down. He doesn't need recharging. He's God. He's immutable. He does not change. There is is no degenerative effect 
The law of thermodynamics, the second law of thermodynamics does not apply to God. And that's that everything that starts will tend to lose energy and, and, and degenerate and go down, uh, disintegrate into chaos and into mess. That's the law. That's a law of thermodynamics that we are under. And so, uh, by that, uh, just this big thing could not have happened accidentally, but God is not under that law. He does not wind down. So he doesn't rest in the same day, in the same way that you and I rest. He rests in this sense that he takes pleasure and he ceased. The purpose is done. I'm not going to add anything to it. He's pleased. He's fulfilled. He's content in what he did. So God gives to us, he sanctifies that day and he says, you also need to rest. What's he saying? You also need to step back, cease from your work. You may not have accomplished what you need to accomplish. You may not have done what you needed to do. But when you are living because of I am, when you are living under the guidance of the Lord, when he is your Lord and he is your God and you have no other image and you have no other God and you're serving him alone, you can take pleasure in knowing that God's work is working in your life. So the Sabbath is not just about rest in the physical sense. The Sabbath is about us finding fulfillment and contentment in God. It's about laying aside our burdens of the six days before and finding peace and rest in the Lord. We need rest. We need rest more than every seven days. And that's why God gives us the sun and the moon. He puts, he puts nighttime in there so that we'll sleep. We need rest every single day. We can't even go a day without rest. If we do go very many days without rest... Something's going to go wrong. We're going to get sick. It's not going to be healthy for us. Some of us need more rest than others. But what God did was God found pleasure. Now, on the eighth day, God didn't go back to work like we would go back to work. We go back to work. We have to go back to work. But God was setting apart the seventh day for us to enjoy, to find pleasure. And that pleasure, that enjoyment, that fulfillment is only found in proportion to our relationship with him. What God said, there was a promise in that. He said, the Sabbath was not a day for oppression. It was not a day for drudgery. He told them, he said, here's my promise. All the other heathens, they work. They work seven days a week nonstop. He said, but I'm going to bless you. You're going to work six days and every seventh day, you're going to stop. You're going to pause. You're going to give God glory. You're going to find pleasure and fulfillment and living a life of, uh, uh, in God in Christ, as we would say in the New Testament. And he says, and I'm going to bless you as much as if you would have had, had work seven days a week. So the Sabbath is not about uh, us just uh, physically rest. It's about finding pleasure in him. Now, that's not something we do once every seven days. In Christ, that's something we do all the time. And even though this commandment is not reaffirmed in the literal keeping in the New Testament church, it is something that we live out in our life in Christ. Christ is our Sabbath. I, I don't have to wait every seven days. I find pleasure and contentment right now. In day one of the week work, in day two, in day five of my miserable week of work, whatever that is that you do, I find joy and peace and fulfillment in Christ. And, and we are called to live a life of Sabbath. Your life should, should be lived uh, as a life of, of, of joy and peace and pleasure in him. Now look at what he says, and we're going to end with this. He says, remember the Sabbath. So he means recall it. You got to call it to mind. Remember the Sabbath. Don't forget it. And then he says, 
to keep it holy. Literally, we could also translate that to make it holy. To make it holy. You keep it holy. How do you keep it holy? You keep it holy. You keep it non-polluted. You keep it purified. You keep your, your your enjoyment, your pleasure, your rest, your fulfillment should not come from outside of your relationship with God. Now, I thank God for the things He's given us in our life. And there are things that can feel good and help at a time. But our pleasure... Our joy, our satisfaction does not come from anything. It doesn't come from my career. It ought not come from my career. It ought not come from my education. It ought not even come from other relationships. But it comes from my relationship with God. Now, in my relationship with God, God has blessed me with relationships with other people. And I do find enjoyment and pleasure and fulfillment and contentment and peace in that. But Christ is my Sabbath. So life in Christ is our Sabbath. Just as he said, remember the Sabbath. That means we are to recall in the mind. Don't forget about it. It's a reference back to the past of what God has done. Life in Christ. We also should never forget what he did on the cross. And what he did on the cross should guide and rule our life. So here it is. Here it is. My life schedule is subject to God's order and God's will. And for the Israelites, every seven days, they had to stop. Their entire life's schedule revolved around their relationship with the Lord. Now, I know a lot of good, well-meaning Christians that think that they're following the law of God, but they cannot even surrender their schedule to the things of God. Can I tell you, this is starting to cut a little bit deeper. The paradigmatic, the paradigm of this is that my life is subject to God's order and will. I don't live on my timetable. I don't live on my desires. I put God first and I trust him first. I don't, I'm not required to keep a Sabbath every Sabbath, seven days. Christ has fulfilled the law and he's elevated it. I'm called to live a holy life every single day. But my life should be subject to the things of God. And the New Testament church understood that. And it was in that that they decided that they were going to keep the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, what we would call today by the Gregorian calendar Sunday, the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, the day of new beginnings. That was the day that they set aside to be the Lord's Day, to honor God. But they didn't just live for God one day a week and then forget about Him the rest. No, He was every day. We don't see, we see them breaking bread house to house. We see them worshiping, having church, having uh, evangelism. They did not reduce uh, the corporate worship. They did not reduce evangelism, conversion to one day of the week. It was always. And so we also ought to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Here it is. We're called to a Sabbath. We're called to contentment in the Lord. God beheld, he was pleased, and he ceased. He didn't add any more to it. I'm not going to add any more, God. I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a day. I'm, I'm not going to add any more. I'm going to be content with what you've done. I'm going to be fulfilled. And what, I may not have achieved everything I wanted to accomplish, but if I'm right with God and in relationship with God, that's all the fulfillment that I need. And so I'm content, I'm fulfilled, and I'm living a life holy. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, to make it holy. My life is dedicated and separated to the Lord. I don't want anything to pollute that. I want to, I want to keep my life holy to the Lord. Look at this, Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, and we'll close right here. Romans 14 and 17 says, For the kingdom 
of God is not meat and drink. What is he talking about? He's talking about it's not the keeping of the letter of the law, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And when you have the whole paradigm of the law, the spirit of the law, you don't have to worry about keeping the letter of the law because you're going to keep the letter of the law. When you have the spirit of the law working inside of you, you need the Holy Ghost and I need the Holy Ghost more than ever before because that's what enables us to keep the law. This is so important. It's so powerful. And when you live your life, wow, you come to a place of fulfillment. You come to a place of contentment. You come to a place of joy when you live your life following after the Lord. That's why they got in so much trouble when they started worshiping other gods. Because the moment you do that, the moment you're worshiping another god, all of a sudden you've derailed yourself. Remember, these commandments are successive. So if you can't, if you don't keep the one before, you're not going to keep the one after. If you don't learn not to take the name of the Lord God in vain, you're not going to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And if you don't keep God, if you don't worship any other idols, if you're worshiping other idols, you're going to take the name of the Lord in vain. So they're successive. They build on one another. So here's where we're at. Because I am a look at the Ten Commandments. So ultimately, if I know who God is and he's Lord in my life, ultimately, all of these commandments are going to play out. And that's why Jesus said the first and great commandment is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And if you focus on that, you'll do all the others. If you focus on that, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. If you focus on that, you'll, you'll, you'll have a good life, a life with fulfillment, a life with joy. Nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can lock that in. Nobody can shut that up. Nobody can, can tune that out. So here we are in a situation we didn't want to be in, but we still have joy. We still have peace. We still have righteousness in the Holy Ghost. Amen. So you should not be swayed. You should not be discouraged. Your faith should just be as strong today as it's always been. And if it's not, I invite you to go back and take a look at who he is and let him be Lord in your life. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you for being here and taking some time out. Amen. To be back together at the church. I, I, I miss you. Love to hear from you. Send me a text or whatever. And we're praying for you. If you have any special needs we want to pray for, thank you to Brother Philip, Brother Brandon being here tonight to help us be able to bring this. All the other uh, teams that help out so much around here. God bless you. We can't wait to see you soon. Go in grace and fear of the Lord.